In 1970, a Brazilian educator and activist named Paulo Freire published a landmark book titled Pedagogy of the Oppressed. In the opening pages, he coined the term conscientization, which is also sometimes translated from the original Portuguese as consciousness raising or critical consciousness. Freire writes that the term is about learning to perceive social, political, and economic contradictions and to take action against oppressive elements of reality. Conscientization seeks to raise awareness of oppressive social systems that perpetuate inequalities as a step toward transforming institutionalized forms of discrimination. As a case in point, when Michelle Alexander talks about her motivations for writing her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness, she writes in the preface that I have a specific audience in mind. People who care deeply about racial justice, but who, for any number of reasons, do not yet appreciate the magnitude of the crisis faced by communities of color as a result of mass incarceration. In other words, I'm writing the book for people like me, the person that I was 10 years ago. Many Unitarian Universalists may be in Alexander's target audience, which helps explain why her book was chosen as this year's Unitarian Universalist Association Common Read. That is a book chosen annually for all you use to read, study, discuss, and consider how we might act in light of. And even if you haven't read Alexander's book, I invite you to consider coming back this evening at five o'clock for a congregation-wide discussion of where we might go in light of this book. There are at least three claims being made in the book title alone. First, that our society is recapitulating the effects and the atrocities of the original Jim Crow laws which enforced racial segregation on the false premise of separate but equal. Two, that we have a systemic problem of rising mass incarceration in this country. And three, that our alleged colorblind age prevents many people from seeing or admitting that there are racist implications behind our high rates of mass incarceration and who ends up being incarcerated as a result as well as who doesn't. Let me start with the second and arguably least controversial of these claims, that we have a mass incarceration problem in this country. Consider this fact. In 1972, for fewer than 350,000 people were being held in jails and prisons nationwide, compared with more than 2 million people today. Even for four decades, that's a tremendous, breathtaking shift. The short answer for how this shift happened is the war on drugs. The percentage of drug arrests that result in prison sentences, rather than dismissal, community service, or probation, has quadrupled, resulting in a prison-building boom the likes of which the world has never seen. At this point, colorblindness comes into play. The perception that justice is blind and the belief that in our advanced society uh, laws are applied even-handedly without regard to age, sex, class, or race 
can block us from seeing that no other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial and ethnic minorities. The United States imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. To bring these statistics closer to home, in Washington, D.C., it's estimated that three out of four young black men and nearly all those in the poorest neighborhoods can expect to serve time in prison. Tragically, those lopsided incarceration rates are mirrored in far too many communities across our nation. One explanation for this disparity, of course, could be that African Americans commit more crimes, especially drug-related crimes. If that were the case, then the drug war would understandably have affected African Americans disproportionately. Some have uh, said, you know, what if the wire were set in an all-white neighborhood? Well, as uh, I think Michelle Alexander has said, it probably would have been a lot more boring. Uh, some of the drug abuse that happens there is, you know, drugs that are purchased legally in a pharmacy, but it is still often drug abuse. However, studies do not support these claims. A 2001 study by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services found that 6.4% of whites, 6.4% of blacks, and 5.3% of Hispanics were current users of illegal drugs. A subsequent DHHS study in 2003 also found nearly identical rates of illegal drug use among whites and blacks, only a single percentage point between them. Again, in 2007, we see essentially the same findings. A 2006 report from the U.S. Department of Justice actually found that white youth are more likely than black youth to engage in illegal drug sales. A 2007 multi-decade longitudinal study showed that African-American 12th graders have consistently shown lower drug use than white 12th graders for most drugs, both licit and illicit. So if illegal drug sales and illegal drug use is approximately the same across racial lines, why are so many more African Americans convicted of drug crimes? The answer seems to be that drug laws are enforced in a racially discriminatory manner to the extent that in some states black men have been admitted to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times greater than those of white men. To give another example closer to home, in studies done right here in Maryland, African Americans comprised only 17% of drivers along a stretch of I-95 outside of Baltimore, yet they were 70% of those stopped and searched. It's what some people call driving while black was their only crime. Now, with this ground laid, perhaps we're ready to begin to consider Alexander's insight that we live in an era of the new Jim Crow. The crux of her charge um, regarding the, is regarding the high number of African Americans who have been disproportionately convicted of drug crimes. She writes that once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, uh, denial of education opportunities, denial of food stamps and other public benefits, and exclusion from jury service, all of those are suddenly legal again. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of the old Jim Crow. Alexander drives her point home by saying, we have not ended racial caste in America, we have merely redesigned it. 
As Alexander tells her own story, she readily confesses that as recently as 10 years ago, she, a trained civil rights lawyer, would have been deeply skeptical about the claims she herself is making 10 years later in this book. And she freely admits that she was beyond thrilled at the election of our nation's first black president. But the more she learned about our criminal justice system, the more she became convinced that the result was a de facto new Jim Crow that permanently locks a huge percentage of the African-American community out of the mainstream society and economy. The reason I mentioned Alexander's own initial skepticism about a revitalized uh, racial caste system in the U.S., as well as her celebration of Obama's election, is because I don't want any sense of overreaching, any sense that Alexander may be overstating the case for a new Jim Crow to cause anyone to dismiss this work without wrestling with it seriously. I began by noting the sharply increased rates of mass incarceration, perhaps because the largest segments of our society can perhaps at least agree that such high rates of incarceration are a trend that desperately needs to be reversed. To remind you of the raw numbers, in 1972, fewer than 350,000 people were being held in prisons and jails nationwide, compared with 2 million today. So perhaps step one is simply raising awareness, that Freer's conscientization, raising awareness of this marked shift and calling for ways of drastically lowering our prison population. The next step is raising awareness about the racially biased nature of how our legal system continues to operate. To address the so-called colorblindness that has blocked many parts of our society from seeing racial bias in criminal convictions, I'd like to share with you one of my first experiences with an anti-racism workshop. I first attended a multi-day intensive workshop on dismantling racism a little more than a decade ago. Part of what still stands out to me from that training was a claim that there has been no progress in working against racism in our country. Now, although I found most of that workshop quite compelling and challenging, I was completely incredulous about the claim that there has been no progress in working against racism in this country. And as many of you have gotten to know me, I didn't mind saying that out loud. Admittedly, in the early 2000s, you still occasionally heard commenters you know, with the audacity to say things like, Bill Clinton is our first black president. But even with that, I just couldn't accept that someone could be aware of historical events like the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, the ruling of Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. How could you be aware of those sea changes and have the audacity to stand in front of me and claim that there's been no progress in working against racism in this country? But the facilitator, facilitator would not back down from this claim, despite my protests. Now, I was willing to accept his counterpoint that racism has become more insidious, but I remained unconvinced that progress had not been made as far as racial justice. Now, I would still be willing today um, to argue that there has been progress in this country toward dismantling racism. But I think what my workshop facilitator was missing was a book like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which, of course, wasn't published until 2010. 
I wonder if I would have been forced to rethink my conviction that there has been clear racial progress in this country if my facilitator had confronted me with the fact that today there are more African-American adults under correctional control in prison or jail or probation or parole than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. Does that give you the same pause that it does me? Are we too quick in our assurance that there has been progress in dismantling racism when we realize that today there are more African Americans under correctional control than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began? A few weeks ago, on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I talked about King's use of the Rip Van Winkle story to caution us against sleeping through a revolution. But Dr. King had in mind a revolution toward fulfilling his dream of ending racial inequality. Michelle Alexander is warning about an insidious counter-revolution. That the racially discriminatory way in which our laws have been enforced in recent decades is the most damaging manifestation of the backlash against the civil rights movement. From another angle, Cornell West has gone one step further in the foreword to Michelle Alexander's book, writing, if young white people were incarcerated at the same rates as young black people, the issue would be a national emergency. And that's where you see the intersection of race and class come in, because most of the black people who are imprisoned are disproportionately not only doing whatever they're doing, driving while black, walking down the sidewalk in the wrong neighborhood while black, they're also poor, which affects the legal representation they can get. So you're seeing there the intersection of race and class. One response to this dire situation could be despair. My own response in reading Alexander's book oscillated somewhere between deep sadness and righteous anger. But the first step in transforming our prison industrial complex is raising awareness that there's even a problem. That the situation is much more complex than just we need to get tough on crime. And that colorblindness may be more a part of the problem than the solution. To again quote Cornel West from the foreword of Alexander's book, the lesson that West takes from MLK's dream is that we're not called to be colorblind toward each other. We're called to be lovestruck toward each other. As, Un As Unitarian Universalists, our first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That includes prisoners, the poor, and the vulnerable. Our second principle is justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. And that includes a need to make our criminal justice system more humane, more just, and more compassionate, that those who come out on the other side might again become contributing responsible citizens of our society. I could continue to correlate each of our UU principles with the need for prison reform. And I would encourage you, regarding any social justice position that you're passionate about, to consider how does this intersect and how can it be informed by UU principles and sources. But, and, for the, and if you want to explore this position further, I'll also include in a, a footnote to the sermon, there's a, a whole website on the UUA website of the many different uh, thinking and statements of consciences that, that UUs have made throughout the years about reforms that need to be made to our drug policy, reforms that need to be made to our criminal justice system. So we don't have to start from ground zero on this work. Uh, we can partner with individuals and groups who have been working for many years to change the system.
And at least in my opinion, a commitment to principles such as the inherent worth and dignity of every person and justice, equity, and compassion in human relations requires working for a shift in our criminal justice system from a primary characterization of punitive justice, of punishing people who did wrong, to one primarily characterized by restorative justice. That is a focus less on punishment than on rehabilitation, restoring right relationship for all concerned, and on repairing the problems that contributed to crimes being committed in the first place. For example, in the U.S., we spend more on prisons than we do on police. But those numbers were reversed before the rise of the prison industrial complex began a few decades ago in this country, and they're reversed in other countries who have much lower crime rates. So the question becomes, how are prisons and the way we have set up our prison uh, industrial complex, how is that actually contributing to future crimes being committed? And communities such as New York City have been able in recent years to decrease prison populations and crime rates through increased police work. Now, that, those findings such as in New York City are complicated because they're, they're, built, they're currently built upon things like a very uh, high-impact stop-and-frisk rule, which ends up disproportionately stopping and frisking many people who are of color. So we relatedly need to do a much better job about teaching, promoting, and protecting our Fourth Amendment rights. We're pretty good, as you use, about our First Amendment rights Maybe we need to get better about our Fourth Amendment, both as Unitarian Universalists and as citizens of the United States. That the right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, their papers and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause. Someone recently uh, confronted TSA and, as, and was, was strip-searched, but he had, he had written the Fourth Amendment on his... <laughs> on his chest in marker. He didn't tattoo it. But. Uh, disturbingly, the trend in recent years have been many court rulings that seem to undermine the Fourth Amendment, encourage unreasonable searches, including rampant racial, racial profiling, contributing to a disproportionately high rate of incarceration among people of color. To name one further um, possible response to the new Jim Crow, as some of you know, many decades ago, this congregation became a lifetime member of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I know that some of you have been involved at various points in working with the NAACP here in Frederick County. And we have invited a recent president of the local branch of the NAACP to our discussion this evening. My understanding is that he plans to attend and has helped us spread the word about this discussion. Now, I don't know how many members of the NAACP that aren't typical members of this congregation may be coming, but if this congregation were to become serious about doing anti-racist work, a strong first step might be for some of us to start attending NAACP meetings, to hear from people of color directly about their stories, their struggles, and their ongoing work for racial justice. Along these lines, Mark Morrison-Reed has, has written a book titled Black Pioneers in a White Denomination about the experience of African-American ministers in Unitarian Universalism. Morrison-Reed describes himself as a black-born, Unitarian-bred minister of a liberal faith. His studies show that in 1968, when black involvement in Unitarian Universalism was at its historic height, Blacks numbered 1,500 of the denomination's 1,800 members, less than 
And only 23 black men and women have been received into ministerial fellowship since 1889. 1889. Looking at the few Unitarian Universalist congregations that have become more racially integrated, he notes that the most successful were those visibly active in race relations in their communities. 